This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Beer. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Connie Beer. I'm a co-founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. If you're listening right now and you have any comments or questions during the show, give us a call in the studio. Our number here is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Chris Hutchins. He's the CEO and co-founder of personal finance startup Grove. Chris, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Chris is a serial entrepreneur and, more importantly, a self-described nerd about optimizing his financial situation. And these two things finally combined with the launch of Grove earlier this year that pairs people with certified financial planners. So could you give kind of your snapshot of what Grove's about and how it works? Yeah. So we started Grove because if you look uh, in America, less than one in five people have any confidence that they're on track for their financial goals and it's the biggest cause of stress, anxiety, divorce. And so we thought that part of what people needed was a human approach to financial planning. So we pair human financial advisors with our clients and we kind of act as a personal trainer for their money. We understand where they're at today and we help create a plan for how they can reach their goals and how they can get more confident about their finances. So for somebody that's listening right now, they're excited about it. If they want to learn more, where do they go? Yeah, our website's hellogrove.com. You can get started uh, either by taking a free personal financial checkup or signing up for an intro session with one of our CFPs. Okay, so you do that. And then what's the first thing they do once they get to the site, they go through that, and then they decide they're going to sign up? Yeah, so uh, on, on an intro session, our advisors will walk through you know, what, what the experience is like, a demo of the product, talk about you know, where we are, our availability, pricing, uh, how, how the process works. And once you become a client, um, the way we get to know you is we do three things. One, we let you fill out a bunch of information. Um, we let you sync your accounts uh, so that we can kind of learn all the nuances of your 401k that maybe you don't even know. And then finally, we do a call with one of our CFPs where we kind of walk through you, your family, your goals, your finances, and really make sure we have a complete understanding before we go back and build you a personalized financial plan, uh, which we deliver online and, and kind of give you a chance to d- take take it in. And then we sit and work with you uh you know, with your advisor on any questions you have and how to execute it and, and kind of help walk you through it. And when you say to sync your accounts, what does that mean? Yeah. So um, if you've ever used a site like mint.com um, or any similar site, uh, there's uh, a few third-party companies, uh, in our case, um, a really large one called uh, Yodly, which, you can use, which allows us to um, give you an ability to type in your login for up to 18,000 financial institutions we don't actually ever store the login information. We don't have access to change anything in your account, but it gives us access to see the balance in your account uh, and some of the information within so that you can, it saves you the hassle of having to log in, download a PDF statement, upload a PDF statement, and then repeat that anytime something changes. So where did this idea come from? Yeah, so I am, you know, one of the the as I now know, very few people that anytime I have a financial question, I go build my own financial spreadsheet. I come up with a model. I go ask a bunch of people, and I can sit and think about it for hours. And so, naturally, I'm a very frugal, optimizing kind of person. And as I started, so you've loved personal finance. Yeah, yeah. It's It's actually it's a true personal passion. The way some people might think about race cars, you think about personal finance. Yeah. So I had a funny story today. Uh, I had a bunch of, uh, I don't even drink coffee, but I love the fact that it, you, That's can, hard to believe. you can game the Starbucks uh, points system and earn, you know, dollars worth of free drinks greater than the amount you spend. And so, but I had these like, you know, one and a half free drinks worth of points that expired last night. And I told the team like, does anyone want to drink? No one wanted a coffee yesterday. And so I emailed Starbucks. I was like, is there any way you can uh, extend this? And everyone was like, 
how much do you value your time such that you're going to email the Starbucks people to try to get a, you know, a drink and a half free? And it was like, it's not about the time. Like my personal like excitement comes from knowing that I got the best deal possible. What does that mean to email Starbucks by the way? <laughs> I, and you know, you go in the app and you're like, you go to support and you say, Hey, I have some points expiring. Is there any chance you'd be willing to extend them for me? So you uh, message them. Yeah. And you're learning something because to a certain extent you're building an online service. So you're thinking about how that works too. You're getting a little more than your time out for saving that cup and a half. Yeah, but I'm also getting this like thrill of knowing that I got the best possible deal. So what happened? Uh, so they extended them till December. So now I have you know six more months to offer someone a free coffee since I don't drink it myself. So you type that in the Starbucks app. How quickly did you hear back from them? Uh, about uh, I sent it last night and I heard back this morning. So I mean I'm very impressed. Starbucks when it, once you submit any support request, it pops up and says we will get back to you within one business day. That's um, impressive. I was really impressed. Going back to your inspiration for this, yeah. finance nerd, how did you take that, find a co-founder, start to build a business? Yeah, so you know, naturally, I'm you know in my early 30s, uh, but in over the last five six years, I've you know my peer group has gone through all of these major life events: getting engaged, getting married, starting to think about having a family, saving for the cost of childcare and education, buying a home, and. Uh, Naturally, if I'm the person that everyone comes to for financial advice, I get all these questions. And uh, I tried to, you know, when, when any question became maybe more investment related and technical than I knew the answer to, uh, there was one person that I'd been friends with since middle school. We were on the math team together that I would always go and, you know, say, hey, I've got, I want to dig in deeper. Do you have some ideas here? And this was my co founder. His name happens to also be Chris. Um, he went to Wall Street and kind of worked in the hedge fund world and the investment banking world and all of that for uh, his career. And so he and I would always collaborate when people asked me questions. And that just kind of evolved to the relationship of, wow, what if we started a company that helped people answer these questions because everyone we knew had financial questions that weren't getting answered. So let me get this right. The two co-founders are named Chris. Yes. How do you clear up the confusion internally? Uh, it's funny. So we never have a problem because you're like C1, C2, or how do you handle that? Uh, we haven't had to handle it. Uh, I, I, we, we drew straws for who got Chris at as an email and I did. Uh, so I'm Chris at, and he's, uh, he's Chris Doyle at, um, but yeah, it's, it's not as difficult as we sit on opposite sides. So if someone's talking in one direction, we know who they're talking to. So uh, by the way, I don't know if you know, there was a similar point of confusion at mint.com we were early investors in Mint. two errands there were two errands there was aaron patzer the founder yep and there's aaron fourth who is running product there yep and the way they handled it is they had a4 for aaron fourth but then aaron patzer was a1 because he was the founder uh -huh. and ceo so we, ha we don't so have you haven't closest. gotten there yet you don't have that yet. issue yet no nope. okay so beyond the two chris's at what point did you start to recruit more people yeah. So for the first, you know, three, four months, I was fortunate. I was working at Google Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence. Um, and we were just trying to figure out, you know, for me, having been a venture capitalist, it was, I want to make sure there's a real thing here before we, you know, even talk about raising money. So we'd started talking to a few early test clients. We'd gone through the registration process to be a registered investment advisor in California. And uh, the point at which we decided that this was a thing where we wanted to hire people and grow and raise money was the point at which, um, one, the first few clients were like, this is amazing. Can we tell other people? And we're like, no, no, we, don't, we can't bring on other people. We're just, we're just two people uh, right now. And two was that, we evaluated the entire workflow. So we kind of looked at the customer journey. How can you make the customer experience and financial planning the best in the world? And then also the advisor journey. How do you make the work an advisor does um, align with what they're interested in, passionate in, and what humans are good at and not software? And I, I kind of took everything I'd learned in my software background and looked at the advisor journey. And we kind of clearly saw that there was a way to make the entire advisor experience and even the customer experience kind of orders of magnitude more efficient with software. And so, that was the point where you decide, oh, we need to do something more. So I have to ask a question here. You mentioned something about a test. Yes. A registered investment advisor test. Yeah. So what is, what is that? So, I mean, I've heard of this. Is it, they, they say like series blah, 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 yeah. or something so like Chris that. So Chris and I each had to take this series 65. Series 65. Yes. Okay. Um, it was, uh, Chris had already taken a few kind of series exams back in his uh, time uh, in New York. And so for him, he was like, oh, I know about 70% of this knowledge. For me, surprisingly, a lot of 
knowledge on regulatory stuff and not very specific. So they're like, the subject matter is the Investment Company Act of 1940. Oh, you're kidding. And that, you know, the Securities what? Exchange Act of 1933. Like, that's what you need to learn. What's the purpose of this? Um, Was there any insight that you realized when you looked at it? Because you were a personal finance nerd, but then you go and you take these tests that people need to take so that they don't break the law in giving advice to people. Were there any insights in digging into this and then taking this test? I think there are things that by learning everything in the test that you understand that as a business owner become very interesting. So there are rules about how many states you can operate in and what the way to operate in them is before you register with the SEC. And you know, as an owner of the business, that's really interesting. As someone who works at a company, I've no, I'm not really sure why they would need to know that don't care. unless they were running their own business. So uh, for me, it was great. For a lot of advisors, uh, most of the advisors we hire, in fact, all of them to date uh, are certified financial planners. And they have to take a much bigger, longer test uh, called that's the CFP exam, and that is, supplants the requirement of taking the Series 65. So, um, you know, it's not something that everyone has taken because they've taken a harder test. But surprisingly, you know, in, in our company, the only people that can give investment advice are people who have been licensed to do so. So we even have one engineer who has taken home the Series 65 study guide because he's, he's, he's one of the few people who's not allowed to give investment advice. Even if he knows the answer, he's not allowed to chime in. So he took the book home. He's like, maybe I'm going to study on this on the nights and weekends. Uh, I'm not sure he made it that far. It's a pretty dense book that uh, you have to be a very particular kind of person. How long does it take to pass this exam? Um, I think if you really wanted to study hard, human. you could probably, as an average human, study for if you were doing it full time uh you know maybe a week or two and take oh, so a test it's a real commitment to get yeah. through this thing. uh you know you have a study guide about 300 pages um take a test it's not nearly as as challenging as the series seven or the cfp exam and it's like probably nowhere near as as difficult as the bar exam so i wouldn't say it's the hardest test i think that if i were one year out of college i would have been much better because i was kind of in the mode of studying you might have gotten through it in three days but, I mean, it's been a while since I'd had to study for a standardized test. And one final question here, because I'm fascinated by this, actually. What's the purpose of it? Of is the it, exam? Yeah. Yeah. So the why, purpose why is... Why does California, or why do states, or why does the government require this exam? Yeah. So giving, you know, taking the responsibility of managing people's money and giving them investment advice has a, a real implication on their future. And I think that if you don't uh, set some standard for the kinds of people who are allowed to do that, uh, you put a lot of people at risk. I think the, the bar could be higher, um, more for companies than individuals, but uh, you know, there's at least needs to be some threshold of knowledge that someone needs to have in order to be in a profession that, that affects so many people's lives. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Chris Hutchins, he is the CEO and co-founder of personal finance startup Grove. Speaking of Grove, where where did the name come from? It's a funny story. So the process to get licensed uh, as a registered investment advisor in California takes a little while. Um, the licensing bureau has 30 days to respond to anything. So you say, here's what we want to do. And they take 29 days before they send you something. And they say, here are my feedback. Now you give them some responses and they take another 30 days. So it can take a few months to get through that process. So the first time we picked the name Grove was, hey, we need a name. We're going to have three months before we can even operate. We could change the name. Let's pick something. We spent a couple hours talking about names and we liked Grove and we went with it. Um, then we went through the process again. We probably went through 200 names. We worked with uh, this woman, Laura Milan, who uh, actually works near us uh, at Google, uh, at GV on the marketing team. And she had gone through a few different naming sprints uh, with portfolio companies, helping them out. And so she ran an entire naming sprint. Uh, Is uh, she at Google Ventures? Yeah, she's still at Google Ventures. She's one of the investing partners now. Okay. Um, and she so, went through some sprints. And we, we came down to a handful of names. We came down to a couple names. And there were seven people in the room. None were biased towards Grove. I, in fact, was excited to find a new name. And when we talked about what we wanted in a name, what was important, what sounded right, we just kept coming back to Grove. It feels like a pretty good name. With the exception of the fact that I've, I've run into another person who is the founder and CEO of Grove, uh, a company in the, um, I think they're like home cleaning products. 
uh, Grove Collaborative. There, there are a couple. So it sounds like Dove ice cream, Dove soap. Exactly. Uh, so I don't think there's so anyone. Fine from a trademark point of view. Yes, but okay. uh, from a startup standpoint, every now and then I get emails from people, uh, including one from the Qantari Investment Authority, thinking they were going to invest in a late stage round of this company, and instead we met with me. Uh, it was a fun meeting. So. When you're at holiday parties and people find out you run a personal finance company, do people ask for finance tips? Do they ask for stock tips? Do they ask for things they ought to do? Uh, I never, you know, you always you always have the idea of, oh, I meet this guy, he's a doctor, I can ask him a question about my, my arm, take a look at this. But it must happen all the time, the doctors, right? I know it happened, happened when I was a practicing engineer. People would ask me about how to fix their car. Yep. So... I am amazed that just being a financial professional has people open up in ways that I never would have thought. Uh, you know, I, I'd be sitting, sitting with just a friend who I've known for years, and now that I'm running this company, they'll be like, oh, you know, I'm having this question. I was talking to my parents. By the way, they have this many dollars. By the way, my bank account has this many dollars, and I'm trying to think about... Oh, so like, they start to share. People. Overshare, maybe. Uh, you know, it helps me, actually. It's it, it's quite uncomfortable as someone's friend to be like, hey, by the way, how much money do you make? How much money do you have in the bank? Because I can't help you if you don't tell me. But yeah, so I'm surprised that by, by doing what we do now and in the position we're in, people are much more comfortable sharing those things. And it makes it easier for me to give advice. So any hacks you'd like to share? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Money-saving hacks. Yeah, so you know, I'd say I've gone pretty deep down the credit cards, points, and miles game. Um, I regularly, you know, I probably have like sixteen different credit cards that I pick to use on whatever the specific purchase is to really optimize for the points to make sure that I Wait, get the get, most. Get out your wallet. So this is a bad example. Oh, you don't Let me get out my Apple you? wallet. Oh, you have Apple wallet. wallet. Oh, okay, so you, you don't just... carry a physical wallet. Uh, That's where all the credit funny cards enough, are. I just started carrying a physical wallet with one credit card in it, but. Uh, all my credit cards are either in my backpack or in my in my Apple wallet. I've reached Holy the limit. Holy cow! There's a lot in there in that uh, wallet. Yeah, I've reached the limit. You can't. You can only add, I think, eight credit cards to Apple Pay. What does that do to your credit rating when you have that many credit cards? Uh, I mean, I am no? I am close to the max on credit score, so okay. it is not. Oh, so you you've optimized I, the I've, credit score. The credit score thing is like a game where it's like, how can you get to eight fifty? And uh, I look forward to getting there. I'm close. So. When people see your credit score, do they pass out sometimes? So if you were getting a an auto loan or a mortgage or something, have you had somebody look at your credit score and say, I've never seen that? I've never I'm seen not... an eight forty seven or whatever. The funniest the funny you say that because uh I actually tried to get an auto loan uh last week and uh I need I my wife and I were gonna go pick up a car and we were gonna both be on the title and we both qualified for the loan and the I, she wasn't able to come pick it up. So I told the, uh, the, the dealership, I was like, hey, my wife's not going to be able to come. Is that okay? And they're like, well, that's fine. She just won't be on the title. Just make sure it's cool with the loan bank. So I called the bank. I'm like, hey, my wife's not going to be on the title. Is that okay? They're like, oh, that's fine. She just won't be on the loan. And then they looked and, you know, startup salaries, uh, they looked and said, well, actually, sir, you have an outstanding credit score, but your income does not qualify you to buy this car. <laughs> <laughs> so if your wife can't be on the title for the car, I'm unfortunately afraid we're not going to be able to give you a loan for it. So are you scheduled to go back in and she'll be on the title? So we rescheduled and picked up the car a few days later. Okay. That's amazing. So, uh, you know, I might have a good credit score, but uh, startup salaries uh, aren't enough. Credit score is not enough. That's that's fascinating. So how about point tips? Credit card point tips. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing I always tell people is is really evaluate what you're spending your money on. Um, you know, I realized uh, that we have a you know, we spend a lot of money on AdWords and Facebook uh, at the company. So there's a credit card that gives you three x points on those that spend. Uh, I knew that I spent money on travel and dining. So I got the card that maximizes that the most. Uh, I noticed uh, when I was traveling a lot that I was staying at Starwood hotels a lot. So I got the Starwood card. Um, sometimes I just noticed that there's an incredible sign-up bonus that makes up for the fact that you know the card might not be great, but they're offering you 100,000 miles if you sign up and spend $2,000. So I'll do that. Uh, and I'll wait for it. And I remember my co-founder, uh, the Amex Platinum card regularly has a 100,000 mile sign up bonus or 100,000 point sign up bonus, but only sometimes. 
And so his so you wife, wait for it. Yeah, wait, you wait for, for it. it. <laughs> his wife had been waiting, I think, two and a half years. And finally, uh, she got the pre-approval like, oh, do you want to sign up for this much? And so she signed up right away. Um, so some of it is just waiting for the right time to sign up. Some of it is waiting for the right opportunity. Some of it is just really thinking, oh, I'm about to spend money. What do I want to spend this on? Uh, I made a card for my wife that uh, I think she has a photo of in her phone that's like, if travel, use this card. If groceries or gas, use this card. Now, you've memorized it. Yes. But she needs the prompt. She at one point did. Now I think she's past that, except that uh, we have one card that rotates the categories that get 5x points each quarter. So I'm like, hey, this quarter, it's uh, any, anything on Apple Pay. So anything you have the chance to use Apple Pay, make sure you use the Freedom Card. Uh, next quarter, do not use the Freedom Card. Do you go to Vegas? I do. Oh, I mean, I, I do when there's a conference there. I'm not a gambler. But you're not a gambler. Not even a little. What other games? Or are they all like games like around finance? So do you play Monopoly or do you play Risk or? I play a lot of Risk card on my games. phone. I okay. Play, I love card games. Euchre, Canasta, Spades, uh, any trick-taking strategic game. I love. Not a fan of the you know go fish kind of kind of basic luck games. So, is Grove your first startup? No. So I would say it's kind of like we all have our like fun entrepreneurial endeavors and projects. Uh, the first thing that I kind of did at a larger scale was I launched this organization called Laid Off Camp um, in 2008 and the financial crisis. Uh, we did about 20 events around the country. So it wasn't in a, a company, but you know we positioned it well enough that you know we did a piece on NPR and the Wall Street Journal, and so we kind of treated it like you would a startup, but it wasn't a, a real company. Uh, and then I left a job at a company called Simple Geo in 2010 to start a company called Milk. So before we get to that, yeah, yeah sorry, that was you just a lot. said you just said laid off camp. Yes. What what is laid off camp? Yeah. So I was one of the uh, unfortunate many that were laid off in the you know wake of the financial crisis of 2008. And uh, the company I worked for had the you know wonderful generosity to move me to San Francisco and lay me off a couple weeks later. So I'm out here. Uh, my now wife, then girlfriend, had moved out here also. Wait, Not did they say we're going to move you out there and then lay you off? So I had so, asked, or would you like us to lay you off where you are right now? I had asked them if they would move me to San Francisco, and uh, so they agreed. And then about two weeks into working in San Francisco, I got laid off. But did you know about it before nope, they moved? Had you? no idea. Oh, I didn't I know see. about it until I mean it literally took me by such surprise that when I had an invitation to a meeting with a senior partner at the firm, it was a management consulting firm, I was like really excited that I was going to be working on a really cool project. So you're going <laughs> in thinking, oh, I've just moved to San Francisco. This is my dream. Here I am. And I'm having my first work meeting. Yeah. And then it went a little differently than you thought it would. It went a little differently. And consulting firms are are both smart and sneaky, but... They have you get laid off by someone who's never met you, who's never worked with you, because no matter what you say, if you're like, oh, well, are, are you sure? Like, we should talk about this. It doesn't make sense. They're like, I'm sorry. I, I'm I, 100% I, sure because this is the extent of our interaction. Yes. Okay. And so it was quite frustrating for me because it was, uh, you know, there were a lot of weird circumstances around it. But at the end of the day, it was November 2008. And, you know, I wasn't the only person getting laid off. Uh, it was just part of the part of the job. Oh, it was when the financial challenges were going yes. on and things so. had changed pretty dramatically. Okay, so you did that and then you were inspired. When when did when were you inspired after this layoff? I'm going to do laid off camp. Well, I, it was somewhat out of uh, you know, if you get laid off in the middle of November 2008, you know, nobody's one, nobody's really hiring because, you know, it's the financial crisis. Two, most companies aren't really hiring, you know, a week and a half before Thanksgiving or between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I'm sitting here thinking, all right, well, I'm definitely not going to get a job for the next six weeks. Uh, maybe I'll figure out something next next year. But like, what am I supposed to do? Uh, so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Management consulting and investment banking didn't seem like the right thing, but it wasn't the right time to get a new job. I was excited about technology. Uh, and then I, don't, I honestly don't have a, a great origin story for where the idea came, but I had been to a bar camp, which is kind of an unconference that evolved out of the technology space. I was like, wouldn't it be great if all of the people who'd been laid off, maybe some people that were entrepreneurs or freelancers could all get together and kind of figure out how do we use all the skills we have to learn enough that we can find a way to get another it, job, get another job, put our skills to good use, start companies. Uh, and so I was like, 
let's do this. So I came up with this idea. We created a wiki. Anyone could contribute. Uh, we did one in San Francisco. We did one in LA, one in New York. And ultimately, by the end, there were about 20 or 25 of them around the country that various other people took the ownership of. I only helped plan. Is it laidoffcamp.com? It was. Uh, oh, so it doesn't exist anymore. No, so I, it's funny. I, I I just transferred all of my domains the other day. I still have the domain, but I looked, and uh, I was pointing it at a wiki that was hosted at a wiki site that doesn't exist anymore. Oh. Uh, so the site is down. Uh, I, one day, you know, there will be another financial crisis, and maybe I'll revive it. But Did it make then, any money, or was it a chance to do something and learn, as you were saying? I made no money. Um, it, we made enough sponsorship money to cover the food at the events. Uh, you know, I met a few sponsors who ended up hiring me to do some freelance work, so it worked out pretty well. I got to build a you know an interesting brand. Um, you know, we had some media, some press. That was fun. You know, I got to be on the newspaper. My parents were proud. Uh, but no, no, it led to a lot of interesting conversations and, and relationships, but made made me zero money. That is, that is quite a story. I think that laid off camp. Yep. I think that people who get laid off and turn it around kind of have this great perspective of looking back and saying, you know, it's uh, it's something that seems so terrible, but you know, lets you pursue something you care about. And now I'm doing something totally different, uh, so I'm kind of appreciative. Yeah, that. I want to. It, it, we're going to take a break here in just a couple of minutes, but what I do want to ask is, as part of that, for somebody that's been laid off or if they get laid off in the future, what's your number one piece of advice for somebody? I think, you know, the initial reaction is like, let's be really upset, but there's not, you know, that's natural. It's an emotional reaction. But at the end of the day, you kind of get this opportunity to say, what do I really want to do? Um, the other thing that I think not everyone knows is when you get laid off, uh, there is unemployment and you can collect money from the government that, uh, well, there's you, free money waiting for you, free money waiting for you. It's, it's great. Um, so while you're figuring out what to do, there are resources and, you know, financial and, you know, tips from different employment bureaus. So take the opportunity to make sure you collect on that and then take the opportunity to really evaluate what you want to do. And I think it's rare that you get that opportunity because so often you're trying to figure out what to do next while you're employed and you only have a few hours and you can't really put your time into it like you wish. And so if you get a severance, great. If you don't, there's unemployment. You put all that together, you might be able to figure out what you want to do and be happier in the long run. Would you have ended up in San Francisco without this set of circumstances? So I went to an event in New York called Startup Weekend, and I'd always been kind of one of those computer nerds and, and you know, love technology. And at this event, uh, probably 2008 or 2007, or I think it was 2008, I was like, oh my gosh, like people come together and they start companies and there's engineers and designers and product people and business people and they like start companies from scratch and you can do whatever you want. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I literally left the first one and I was like, this is the coolest experience I've ever had. And there was one two weekends later in Boston and I drove to Boston for the weekend and I was like, I'm going to do this again. And we started a company. Uh, it didn't go anywhere, but the experience was so much that, you know, the only reason I re requested to move to San Francisco was because I left startup weekend the second time and said, I, I want to do this forever. And everyone was like, you know, there's a whole city on the other side of the country. <laughs> like, this is all people you do. You don't need to drive up and down the East coast. Yeah. They're like, you can actually San Francisco. Move so, out to San Francisco. So the reason I actually asked the consulting firm to move out here was that I knew that the thing that I wanted to do in the long term was here. And so getting laid off was really just a catalyst to figure it out faster. So we need to take a short break. When we come back from the break, we're going to dig into what you did after you were laid off and after you figured out what was next. I'm Rob Connybeer, founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I've been speaking with Chris Hutchins of Grove on Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Connybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Chris Hutchins. He is the co-founder and CEO of Grove. And when we left off before the break, he was sharing with us laid off camp and how to bounce back from being laid off. And what I'd, what I'd love to hear about is hear about how you and Kevin Rose got milk started. And it's an interesting connection because in the first half of the show, we were talking about dig a little bit. 
And that was one of the ways I believe that Kevin Rose became quite famous was co-founder of Dig and making on the cover of, was it Business Week? Yep. Yeah, the the $100 million that uh, he never actually ended up having. Yeah, so how did you connect with Kevin Rose and maybe talk a bit about how you got Milk started? Yeah, so, you know, I'd known Kevin through the internet, but not in person much. But uh, when I, the first job I got in San Francisco in tech was at a company called Simple Geo, which was founded by an engineer who was previously at Dig. There was a huge overlap in networks. And so I'd been BD there and business development and done, you know, product and kind of had done so many things that when Kevin kind of asked his network, I want to start this company, but I need someone who can kind of just operationally run everything. Uh, a bunch of people pointed him to me. So I got this email. It was like, hey, it's Kevin. Uh, you might know me. A bunch of people say we should talk. I'm looking to start a company. And did you know who he was? Yeah, definitely knew who he was. Okay. Uh, and uh, Did you like, think somebody was messing with you at first or you're like a fishing expedition? You're like, oh, wow, it's Kevin Rose. I, I probably had five or six friends in common. He'd kind of shown up at an event I'd been at. So like, I knew it was close enough that okay. it was real. It felt legit. And I was like, well, the company I'm working at, you know, it, it was kind of clear that they were not on the path that they were when I joined it a year before. Uh, and so decided to, of course, I'm going to grab dinner with Kevin Rose. Why? Who wouldn't do that? What's the subject line say? Uh, I honestly don't know. Did they say like, hi, or let's talk? <laughs> Knowing or... Kevin, it was just like, hi. Like, okay. That, that's what I imagine it would say. Okay. Um, and So you hit reply. Hit reply. How say, long yeah, did it great. take? Did you reply right away, or uh, did you take like, uh, I want to get this right because this sounds pretty exciting? I'm not. I, I'm sure I overthought the response, um, which I now, you know, just not worth it didn't matter like that <laughs> okay. yeah, I, uh and but you you were excited yes okay totally excited I, okay. i'd already kind of had the you know premonition that the company i was working at wasn't gonna necessarily figure everything out um and so i was like what what would i do next and what an opportunity so uh you know we grabbed dinner he's like i want to start this company you know i'd, I'd done the whole run everything at dig i don't want to do that again but a lot of people say you're super scrappy, resourceful, you know, hustler. Like you just get it done. Okay. I, I want someone to do that. Okay. And to put the pieces together, you spent a while compiling the reply. Yes, I'd love to get together. And then did Kevin email you back and say, "Let's grab dinner"? Or how did that unfold? Yeah, yeah. he's like, "Let's grab dinner." And okay. We went to a sushi place somewhere in Hayes Valley. Who picked where to go? He picked. Okay. Uh, and I remember because uh, at one point he just kept ordering sake, and I was like, "Are you are you trying to, you know, liquor me up to get me to agree to join to uh, do something?" Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and we had a great conversation. Um, you know, I think I was... Did he pitch what he was doing, his idea? Yeah, he pitched the idea, which was, you know, an incubator. Like, ah, I've got a bunch of ideas. Here's one that we want to try first. But wouldn't it be great if we could kind of start up studio, test things out, see what gets traction before we actually, you know, commit to that as the company we go and grow a lot? And having just worked at a company that went all the way past the Series A with an idea that we later realized didn't exactly work seemed like a great idea. Oh, because you figure it out first before you pour the resources into it. So that was the idea. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd had the opportunity to do some product and BD, but, you know, never actually done all the things at a venture scale. And, you know, I knew that the one thing I didn't know a lot about at the time was fundraising, which Kevin was fortunate enough that, you know, he kind of raised his hand and he could just bring money in. Was it called Milk from the beginning? Yeah. So it was called Milk, Milk Inc. Uh, and why Milk? I think it was just like a basic, clean, simple name. There was no mother's milk. There wasn't, really, you know, I feel muscle like milk. None, none of our, none of my chocolate name, milk name origin stories have any, you know, huh. great history. Uh, it's just milk. It's just milk. Had, he strikes me as one of the people that probably has a pretty long list of domains available. Like he sat down at one point and probably typed up a bunch of domains. And was this probably one, or do you know how you guys got? No, the no, we name? bought milkink.com. You did. And then Kevin was at some conference. I can't remember what country .lk is, but he was at some conference. Oh, we got mi.lk? And met someone who got us mi.lk for just the you know thirteen ninety nine registration fee because no one was using it. Okay. Uh, so we were mi.lk. So at that point in time, my email was c at mi.lk. That is like, short and sexy. I was like, that is okay. the shortest email I will ever have. Um, 
and yeah, so we were milk, but the product wasn't milk. So it was kind of like we st- started this company, and if you wanted to work there, you knew the name. But you know, the product we eventually launched at the beginning was called Oink, um, which you know was totally separate domain. We had to go buy as well, um, and so there, you know, Milk was relatively unknown as a brand because did anybody have to go to Sri Lanka to actually get the domain? Uh, no, no, because it is a Sri Lanka domain, right? I, I honestly didn't even remember that until you said it. Okay. Uh, so no, we Kevin met some random person at a conference. Um, I don't know who it, it might have been uh, through a guy named Tony Conrad at True Ventures because he had run about.me and gotten really close with you know the the Montenegrin uh, domain guys and maybe there's some group of people that are trying to make their domain really popular. But uh, no, no, I don't, I don't even know how it came up. But we so, got it for like. So you had this dollars. incubator. Yep. And maybe connect the dots between that and Google acquisition. Yeah, so you know, we had launched a product called Oink. We were trying to figure out <laughs> yeah, uh, milk oink. What did Oink just, do? But, yeah, the idea was if you could, you know, there were all these tools that would let you rate places, like oh, Yelp would say this is the best restaurant. But um, you know, in our view, it's like, well, once you get there, it's like, what do I want to order? Or if I really want a great burger. You know, that might be at a steakhouse, not at a burger place. But you go search the internet for burger and you just get burger places. Um, so in our mind, it was let, let's rate the things at places. Um, it didn't have to be a restaurant. It could be a bar. It could be an art gallery, uh, different exhibits. And so, you know, we launched this app. We, we kind of realized it, it was going to have a really slow growth because it wasn't even the 80-20 rule. It was like the 97-3 rule where... The oh, pers- people that actually contribute. Yeah. So unlike Yelp, where it's like, oh, you go to dinner... There's already a database of places. You just have to say whether it was one to five stars and optionally write a review. For Oink, you had to take a picture of the dish, tag the dish, and name the dish, and then rate the dish. Uh, and so a given meal might have you know five course, five dishes between you and the person there. And now all of a sudden, just adding everything took like 15 minutes. And so you had to really be into the kind of – we had some gamification. Now you could become the expert on a certain cuisine or a category. Uh, but it wasn't for everyone. So it took us a while to build up the data set in San Francisco well enough that you know it became a really useful app. And we kind of knew there was going to be this long tail of it's going to take a while to build up the data, but people liked the product. Um, and we were having a conversation with uh, Bradley Horowitz over at Google about what we were doing and you know how it was kind of working. But you know we weren't sure whether we wanted to double down on it. And you know they were in the middle of trying to get Google Plus up and running and really nail social. And, and this is when people were building these different alternatives. You had Foursquare, you had Gowalla, you had different people building these different types of apps. It was like yeah. the glory days of iPhone apps. Yeah, there was so much like location-based social. I think in the time we were running Milk, there were like four other companies similar, one called Stamped. Uh, and you know it, it was clear that it would be an uphill battle to make it work, and there were no obvious signs that it was going to be wildly successful. And one of the challenges of, of any company launched by a, a successful founder, Kevin in this case, is that you have 100,000 people that are using this app because they love Kevin, and it's really hard to tell, like, do you have an app that's actually good for the masses or do you have an a app that services 100,000 people that love the founder? Fans of Kevin. Exactly. So it was really tough. So the opportunity came to uh, all kind of or, or most of the team go over to Google and work on social at Google+. And it was just something that, you know, given where we were as a company, given how the product was going, seemed like the best decision at the time. And how did you connect with Brad Horowitz? Yeah, so Kevin and Bradley were good friends uh, and just ran. I remember this email I do remember. So Kevin and I are sitting late at the office one night, and we're like, well, we're going to write this email to Bradley to kind of propose this idea. It's like, how forward do you get? Do you say, you know, buy us? Do you want to buy the company? (laughs) Do you say, like, hey, should we grab a coffee? And I very specifically remember we said, you know, we would love to have a conversation about what it would look like to solve some of these problems at scale. <laughs> and that was our kind of... That was your open door. Yeah. And the funny thing is now, Bradley read that email and was like, oh, they're trying to see if we'll buy them. So like, I, I wonder whether we needed to play the game or whether we could have sent an email that was like, do you guys want to buy the company? Now, did the folks from SayNow come into Google Plus around that time? For some reason, I seem to remember they were acquired to get folded into Google Plus as well. Or, yeah. I don't remember. This was okay. 2012. 2012. Okay. And um, we did not have the 
best experience, you know, integrating to the you know product team at Google Plus. How, how many people were at Milk at the time? <laughs> so Milk, uh, four people from the team went over to Google. Okay. And we joined a Google Plus team of about a thousand. Oh, okay. So it was pretty far along. Okay. It was pretty far along. Okay. Um, so what happened? Did they show up? Who showed up where? How did the transition happen? Yeah, the four people that joined were two designers and two people in product, Kevin and myself. And you know, the idea was to be in charge of mobile. We'd been building mobile the whole time. So Kevin, you know, mobile. Uh, the photos team was separate from mobile. So Kevin ran mobile, and I ran mobile photos on the PM side. Uh, and that was you know the team that that was there. And I think one of the challenges was the amount of autonomy that was kind of promised and explained in terms of what we would be able to control on the mobile experience of Google Plus and the amount of autonomy that uh, was really there just didn't line up. Where were the milk offices? So we had offices uh, in a warehouse on Shotwell Street in the Mission. I think uh, one of the things that was important to us was let's build the kind of, let's have the kind of office that's super scrappy and far from what we'd all been doing. So you were in Shotwell Street. Yeah. And then there was a Google acquisition. The day you got your Google badge, where were you? Did you go down to Mountain View or was there an office here in the city you joined or did you become a Google facility oh. on Shotwell Street? No, no, no. So Google was like, shut what you're doing down. Come work for us. Um, we, I became a Google employee. Uh, I remember they told us like when you join the first day, you can ride the bus, even though you don't have a badge, show them this email. You can get on a G bus. Uh, and then go to orientation and get your badge. Like the first thing you do when you get there. Uh, so and is that what you did? Yeah. So we had to commute to Mountain View every day, which, uh, there's a special place in my heart for people that have to do that. I don't. Where did you go on get the on the bus for the first time? And how uh, did you find out? Yeah, they send you a map, and they're like, here are the bus options you can pick. Here's the time that they leave. Uh, you know, here's where to go. Did you feel like a kid going to school for the first day? Did you walk up to the bus stop, and you see people that look like they might be on their way to Google? Yeah, and then you show up, and they're like, well, while you wait, here's a restaurant that's totally free. And uh, when I went— On the street? No, no, no. When you get to Google, ah, you get off, okay. you walk into the office, there's free food. I don't know if this was intentional or if this was just like where the space happened to be, but— the badge taking room, the room where they created and printed your badge or at least took your photo was in the Google Mountain View bowling alley. So you're like, this is crazy. I'm like in a bowling alley, but I'm at work. Take my badge. Yeah. And uh, went to orientation. And, you know, it just, it totally felt like I was joining, you know, a university or something and going through this whole crazy orientation. So we're going to talk about Google a little more if you're up for it. And if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer. You're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here with Chris Hutchins, veteran startup entrepreneur and currently the CEO and co founder of personal finance startup growth. So you're in the Google bowling alley. You're getting your badge. And the the badge, could you describe what a Google badge looks like? Yeah. It, I mean, it, it looks like uh, this weird kind of... Yeah, I'm trying to, it has like bubbles on it. Yeah, it's it has white, bubbles, has bubbles behind your face. Your picture, you tilt right? it, your picture kind of does this weird shape that in my particular picture made my nose look very large if you tilted it a little bit to the right. Uh, uh, but yeah, essentially this badge that you carry around everywhere and that lets you ride buses for free, eat food for free. But it gives you gym. discounts too. Like oh. the Apple store, you go in, you show it, you get some crazy discounts Yeah, you get to go to places. all the muse museums for free, discounts at hotels. Uh, I wish I still had my Google badge. Uh, Did you ever show it to somebody asking for a discount and they laughed at you? They're like, what? <laughs> Why? Because there's so many places you can get discounts with it. So I think I'm one of those people that like I just downloaded the database of all the thing places. So I just I knew in advance like if I go here I get this discount. There are a few. So I'm imagining ones. you with the gamification you're talking about, the maximum number of credit cards you have in the phone, all the points, etc. It it must have been amazing what you could have done with the Google badge. Oh yeah, everywhere we went on vacation, my wife and I stayed there. We'd rent a car from Hertz because Google had a discount. We would uh, go to museums because it was free if you worked at Google. Um, you know, we, we we went and ate lunch at the office in Taipei when we were there because there was free food at the Google office in Taiwan. <laughs> uh, you know, it's probably pretty good. The Google life is a good life. Uh, it, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I just, I'll just stay there for dinner also. I wanted to come back to the city because my wife was here. So, you know, I had to buy my own dinner. But, uh, you know, that's okay. Okay. So you take the bus back and forth for a while. And what did you learn while you were working there that 
surprised you and was valuable? Yeah, so I'd never gone through any formal product management training. So at at both Simple Geo and at Milk, uh, I'd done product, but I didn't know you know the way things are done and you know the idea of writing PRDs and how to think about it, working with design and engine, you know, really specking things out and and doing it in a way that you know in the startup world it's like oh if you miss something the engineer will walk over to your desk and say what do I do? But at Google it was like pretty important that the document covered everything, and so you know that was really fascinating. And, and was this formal training? Uh, I think it was like half formal training, half like tons of resources with videos and documentation and that kind of stuff. The the amount of resources Google has is just uncanny. So one might be almost classroom-like, but the other would be online videos that you could look at and you were expected to look at. Yeah, you were definitely expected to learn, uh, definitely expected to go do research on almost anything. And Google's very open. They let you literally have access to all the learning, all the research, all the you know educational stuff for any discipline. So if I wanted access to go learn about how to become a better engineer, I could still go read that. Uh, didn't, but um, you know they, they're pretty good about that. And what did you do? Did you do a 20% project while you were there? The 20% project is funny. So everyone always talks, oh, Google, the 20% projects. And internally... The free time one. The yeah, one you spend 20% of your time they were called 120% projects because <laughs> you, know, it's like you could take 20% of your time and do whatever you want as long as you still have 100% of your time to do So it's job. really a weekend project, yeah. ideally. Uh, yeah, I think Google's evolved to come up with you know ways that you can work on projects more full-time to say, oh, you have an idea? Great, we're going to let you do that full-time. But no. I, I'm guessing you might have done something like a Google product to allow you to figure out how to gamify your credit cards. I, I'm just guessing. No, no. What it was, was funny because fast forward four years in my days as an entrepreneur in residence, I was thinking about starting Grove and there was a job opening at Google, which was a, for someone to manage the financial educational products and planning and advising for employees. And I was like, I want to build this company. And they were like, great, we want someone to manage this. And I was like, will you let me build software that we can use internally and then provide externally? And they were like, no. And I was like, then I'm going to go do it at my own. Why'd they say no? I don't think they were ready to staff the financial wellness and education and advising project with like engineer. You know, it was a let's have someone that can manage the resources, come up with some partners, but they they were not ready to. So commit. they wanted to launch it at scale and be able to commit to it for a while. Yeah, they were not willing to do that. They were looking for someone to kind of be on the HR team and think about financial wellness benefits. Were you kind of happy about that? Well, at one point in time, I sent an email that was like, well, I've kind of already got this co-founder. If you want to acquire this company, uh, that would be interesting. Because <laughs> you'd have the practice with Bradley. Yeah. And I always thought it would be funny because technically when I sent that, I was already I was still an employee of Google. So that would have been great if I could get Google to acquire a company from someone who actually still works at Google. But uh, it never happened. So how much of this did you talk about with Entrepreneur Magazine? Uh yeah, so that I, I talked a lot about the struggles of launching a company. That was the 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 article there was all about how do you like how do you deal with the stress? How do you get help? How do you think about CEO coaches and that kind of stuff? Uh, and deal with everything that comes along with launching a company. It was much less more about that and and not really about you know all the experience on the startup side and then the other side on the VC side. Well, I'm curious did did they approach you? Did you approach them? How did you connect with Entrepreneur Magazine to write this piece. Yeah, so fascinating. So uh, we were part of a program last year at Grove called the Center for Financial Services Innovation. And they have this thing called a FinLab, which they pick eight companies every year that are improving Americans' financial lives. They're a nonprofit, and they fund those companies um, with a $250,000 check, and they provide a ton of resources, one of which was a uh, you know working with a publicist to talk about ways to promote your brand of the company and the founders. And um, they had actually you know been in touch with someone at Entrepreneur Magazine who said, we, we would love to... you know We're thinking about wanting to write a story about the stress of launching a startup. And the woman running that was like, oh, it's funny because I'm working with a founder who's in the process of... And he's stressed. He's stressed out launching a startup. (laughs) He's perfect. Uh, And so we connected the dots, um, you know, took some passes back and forth and and kind of submitted it for, for, you know, review. And I think a way that a lot of these publications work is a lot of the articles are contributing writers who are founders themselves. Uh, And so that, you know, that was... was, So so we've got about three minutes here. You mentioned CEO coaches. Yep. 
And what's the advice that you give people around the topic of a CEO coach? Yeah, I think so. My wife and I are, are big fans of the Olympics. And uh, that, this is where I kind of got my comfort saying this is okay. Is you look at the best athletes in the entire world have coaches. Uh, and then I meet a lot of founders who are like, I don't need a coach. Like, why would I need someone to help me think through difficult things? And I'm like, I don't know, because people that are way better at me than in everything else in the world uh, believe that's true. And, you know, I know that I don't know everything. And I know that sometimes it's helpful to talk through things with other people. And, and there are people who build a career off helping people in that way. And so for me, I think it's, um, you know, I work with someone who it's just great to have someone who's objectively helping you think through a decision, isn't in the weeds with what's going on at your company, isn't one of your investors. Uh, and, and I think it's that's great. important. Yeah, definitely. Isn't one of your investors. Yeah, I think it's How do you important. find the coach then? Um, I was fortunate. My wife um, was provided executive coaching um, through her job at Lyft, and she just totally loved her CEO or her exec coach and introduced me to him. And, you know, we hit it off, and I thought he was great. Did you get a different rate? Uh, so I, I, I got the startup rate. Um, so there are different rates sometimes for this type of thing. You know, I think uh, everyone's got to figure out you know, what the best way to build a client base is. And if you want to help an entrepreneur grow and, and grow, you, it's going to be hard to charge them the corporate rate when they get started. If you're choosing between CEO coaches, you meet with two or three people, how do you know which is the right one or how would you advise somebody to pick the coach? I mean, I operate some a lot of I, some decisions. I'm very analytical and I come up with a matrix of ideas and this kind of stuff. For this one, I would say meet with a few different people, talk through an issue and like, if it's not clear, talk through another issue. But, you know, I feel like this is one of those things where a gut decision is going to be more meaningful than, you know, a thoughtful strategic process. How has your networking strategy changed? Since? Since starting oh, man. Grove. Yeah. Because I'm think... guessing from when you first were out here, laid off camp, the sort of networking you did then, the networking you did at Milk, and the networking you do today has evolved and We've got about a minute for this, but just how does it evolve and how have you refined it? Yeah, I think I, I think two things. I took away the fact that there were, you know, there is always an opportunity to add value and you never know when the value comes back. So, you know, networking is a two way street when people reach out and say, hey, I want to connect. Like, you know, you have to realize that, you know, you never know when something's going to happen. And we've had investors that have invested in the company solely because of a random conversation with a random person that if I had, you know, played all high and mighty, I would have looked at this person and be like, ah, I don't know if they're going to be helpful. And I was just totally wrong. And so I think it's evolved to say, you know, every person you might meet is an opportunity that, you know, is at least worth entertaining. Don't and, prejudge it. Yeah. Don't prejudge. You'll never know what will happen and, and who might, you know make meaningful impact on yourself, your company, or anything. Well, I think you also said something that's very important is mutual value exchange. Yep. In interactions with you have you have with people in networking is to think about how you might be able to add something in the conversation as well as receive. Yeah, I'm always trying to add value to someone else because one day either there will be an opportunity or maybe a favor, and you know you never want to be the person that asks for a favor and is, is always a one-way street. So uh, pay it forward early in advance and... and reap the rewards uh, and don't expect them. Well, Chris, thank you for the advice, the entrepreneurial advice. Thank you for the stories and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So most importantly, where can our listeners go to keep up with you in particular and the work you're doing? Yeah. So if you want to check me out, I'm at Hutchins on Twitter and Chris Hutchins on most things. Uh, and Grove is hellogrove.com. Great. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.